This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. And welcome back to this special edition of Knowledge at Wharton, coming to you from New York City and the Small Giants Awards being presented by Forbes. These are companies that are being recognized by Forbes magazine for the successes that they have had. But these are also companies that are privately held and financial successes. But also, they have very interesting side stories as well. In hour number two, we will introduce you to a company that produces the mix-ins for ice cream products, you know, like cookie dough pieces and more. We'll also introduce you to an environmentally friendly children's book producer. And those are just, just a couple of the people that we will introduce you to here in our second hour. Well, the food industry is having to adapt on a daily basis due to the needs of the consumer, but also how food is being delivered to them as well. One of the trends is the want to add seemingly unusual mix-ins to items to enhance the flavor, but also to give the consumer a new option to consider. One such company doing that in the dessert world is Burlington, Vermont-based Rhino Foods. Ted Castle is the president and CEO of the company and joins us here at the uh, Forbes Small Giants Awards. Nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. So give us the, the, the background on how you came to want to be in this, in this world. From what I read, you were a hockey coach for a while. Yeah, I was, uh, didn't know what to do with myself after I didn't get the head coaching job at UVM. And they started a little ice cream company with my wife, little ice cream store, I should say. And uh, we started to do a lot of different products for people. And fortunately, we were selling Ben & Jerry's franchises, brownie and cookie mix. And they came up with the idea they were taking our cookie dough and putting it into ice cream at their scoop shop in Burlington, Vermont. So right place at right time, we said to them, gee, why don't we try to help you make a pint flavor of that? And that was about 26 years ago. Uh, ben & Jerry's was the first one in the world to put cookie dough into the ice cream. And uh, luckily, we were the ones to do it, and we've been making it for them ever since. And there are millions upon millions of people that are happy that you guys made that decision 20, yes, 26 yes. years ago. Yeah, now I would say almost every or every manufacturer of ice cream, every brand has cookie dough ice cream as a flavor. But you were saying to me before we started this is that you work with some 200 different vendors supplying them with cookie dough and and other types of elements to go into ice creams. Yeah, so most, we have about 60% market share, so there's a good chance if you're eating cookie wow. dough ice cream, you're eating Rhino's cookie dough, and also QSR, so different people put it in blasts or milkshakes or that type of thing. So. Yeah. Cookie dough seems to be something that everybody remembers when they were a little kid and had a little bit left in the bowl, and their mom let them stick their finger in the bowl. So <laughs> I think we're taking advantage of that. But what do you think it was that, that I mean, was it just the, the, the want to add items to ice cream or to frozen yogurt that really just kind of pushed the surge where now every store you go into or at every yogurt shop, whatever it might be, they have such a wide range of extra items that you can add in at this point. Yeah, Ben & Jerry's uh, has always been the icon iconic brand that put chunks and big things in ice cream. They still are. So that started, and it became hugely popular. For one year back in in the 80s, that was one out of four pints was cookie dough ice cream because Ben & Jerry's was the only person in the world that had it. And then when you think of the, the yogurt shops and the different mixing shops, you know, that whole QSR uh, extravaganda where you we, you put things into different things that that's something probably in the last 10 or 15 years and, and that's the interesting part about it because you see it not only in your realm but you see it across the food industry as a whole that's why chefs are being so creative as they yes, are these days for sure for sure you're listening to knowledge award here on sirius xm 111 business radio powered by the wharton school dan loney in new york city we're talking with ted castle who is the president and ceo of vermont-based rhino foods uh, for the, those people that don't know, explain what QSR is. Quick service restaurant. So if you think of McDonald's, Burger King, uh, Sonics, things like that where you're driving in and probably a lot of the food is to go or you just order at the counter would be what I would call a quick service restaurant. One of the interesting things, though, I'm reading about your business is that you are, like a lot of the people here, very much in tune with making sure that your employees are 
part of a family. They're not just employees to you anymore. And you're doing a variety of different things with employees at your company to, to better serve them, to make them better potentially business people on down the road. Yep. Vermont, uh, Rhino Foods is a certified B Corporation, and um, if you look that up, that's part of a movement of people that are trying to figure out how to do business as a force for good um, and focusing on the environment, the community, and workers. And fortunately, Rhino has had that in our DNA for ever since we got started 25 years ago. It's really a passion of mine to think about how to put a group of people together and create a team environment um, and sort of we, we talk about the inside out. So we're looking for ways to help our employees bring their best selves to work. Mm-hmm. And then we're also figuring out what can we do while they're at work, which is 2,000 plus hours a year to send them home in uh, better shape than when they arrived. Part of that is, uh, and part of it is also linked to the fact, I guess, there is a, a fairly strong refugee community in that part of the, uh, the United States as well, correct? Yeah, Burlington, Vermont is a refugee resettlement area. Uh, there really is very little diversity in, in Vermont, and we're fortunate to be in Burlington where it is a refugee resettlement area. So we probably have 30% of our workforce are refugees from all over the world, and we really believe that that's one of the things that makes us unique, especially in Burlington. So we're all about trying to figure out how to be the best employer in the state of Vermont for the refugee population. So some of the things that you're doing, on-site classes of English to help them, people understand English, you, you're working out deals so that people can have loans to be able to help themselves out on a quick turn so they don't have to go to uh, you know, a company that may be charging them I- incredible amounts of interest. I mean, it, it, there's all little different elements that you're doing here. Yeah, you know, if you think about uh, what create stress in people's lives or what makes it difficult for you to do uh, a great job at work that day. If you think about people that are living more paycheck to paycheck, um, a small emergency of $500 to $1,000 can spin their life sort of out of control for a while, fixing their car or hot water heater. So we came up with that idea called the Rhino Income Advance Loan, where an employee can borrow up to $1,000 from the credit union, not Rhino, and get it that same day. And then they're a certain amount is taken out of their payroll from payroll deduction. Mm-hmm. And uh, little tiny rhino foods of 140 people in the last seven years, there's been $350,000 worth loaned out. Mm-hmm. And uh, 96% of the people start a savings account after they've borrowed some money. But part of that has to deal with the relationship that I'm sure you have to build out with the local banking institutions and the local community in general as part of just being a good neighbor in that part of uh, Vermont. Yeah, we went to a credit union, which is very interested in trying to figure out how to be a community credit union and do good things in the community. That's their charter. Yeah. And so it was really an incredible natural fit. It's one of these things that uh, you don't know what you don't know. And I believe that now we know that we had lots of employees that were having difficult situations. And like I say, they didn't have a mom or dad to turn to or they didn't have $4,000 in a, a savings account. 65% of Americans don't have over $500 in a savings account. So it's not just at Rhino Foods. We're really talking about, in many ways, a national epidemic. You also, uh, from what I read, have uh, gotten involved in interest in employee exchange programs as well, correct? Yeah, we came up with that idea about 20 years ago when we had a very large customer that didn't need products for when we had a customer diversification problem, and they didn't need as much product for about uh, three or four months. And instead of laying our employees off, we actually turned ourselves into a little bit of a temp agency ourselves, and we tempt our people out. We called it an employee exchange program. They worked for other businesses anywhere from three weeks to about 12 weeks, and then we brought them back. But you also, in that situation, who are they partnering with? Who are you partnering with? Local companies? Local-like businesses that that are seasonally different than ours. So we actually do that right now. We have three employees that are at a chocolate factory. They're getting uh, truffles and things like that made while we're in the ice cream season. It's a little bit slower right now. We are talking with uh, Ted Castle, who is the president and CEO of Vermont-based Rhino Foods. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. When you come to an event like this, and I mentioned this uh, earlier in our show, it really is an opportunity to be able to, to pick the brains of other people in somewhat like situations. Do you see that as well? And, and have you been able to kind of start to gauge what other people are doing and things that that may even be able to work well for you. Of course, you know we we 
we believe that we're relatively innovative and have a can-do attitude, but over the years, uh, finding like-minded businesses, this is a great opportunity for Rhino to be here. We're thrilled to be chosen by Forbes to be part of the Small Giants uh, community. And, you know, over the years, there's been what we call Vermont socially responsible businesses, plus the B Corp community is a very strong group of people that are really trying to influence business in the way it's done. So Rhino is all about sharing. So we now know that our Rhino Income Advance Program, we're very much about sharing that all over the, the country, and we know that it is. We know it's probably in, in at least 15 states by now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, that's what we're all about is trying to figure out if there's a better way to do business. B Corp firms are, have been on the grow especially in the last several years. And it feels like it it is not even just a movement anymore. We're getting to the point where it has become a part of the community, part of what our culture is here in the United States, that the understanding that you can be a successful firm but also be socially aware and and helping your community, the two can go hand in hand, and they don't have to be separate. Yeah, I think sometimes people think about – Anything that I'm saying now, oh, he must be some do-gooder and not really care about making money and isn't right. isn't paying people well. You know, we're we're a for-profit business. We're not a non-profit. Uh, but over time, we have learned that the way to increase your profits is to take care of your workforce, to take care of your environment, and also be a big part of the community. So people are looking for more out of work um, and bringing a sense of purpose to work. Um, at Rhino Foods is one way we attract the qualified employees, and, and it's the other way we engage and retain them. So we're, we know very clearly that this is a, we're a for-profit business, and the more margins we make and the more money we make, the better business we can have and be a sustainable business. So this is not a non-profit venture. This is a for-profit venture, but also we have very clear purpose and principles of how we do our business. Have you been approached in the past by whether it be private equity or some other company to purchase your company, and you have said, "I, I no, I, I, I like the way our operations are running, and, and that's the way I want to, I want to keep it." Yeah, it, it, it's sort of a common thing. It's, it's not that we're so attractive, but yes, I would say that we get uh, two a week. Um, I don't know how serious some of them are, but right. I think there's just a huge industry that are out there doing that. For me personally, it, it doesn't mean that someone that goes and sells their business or brings in venture capital, it, it's something wrong. It's just not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in trying to grow a, a family business and to have it grow and prosper and be sustainable. So it, it's just the direction that I've chosen to take. I don't, I don't think it's any better or worse than anybody else's, but I do believe that it's it's good for the community because what we're trying to do is create a great business in Burlington, Vermont that's going to be there a long time. So where do you think the growth is now for your company moving forward? Well, we now sell uh, cookie dough in Europe. We actually sell millions of pounds, and we have a partner in Scotland that make product for us. We're making more baked inclusions. We also do a lot of co-pack work, so we make ice cream cookie sandwiches and other products for national brands that you wouldn't see our name on it. Right. So um, there's there's always opportunity to grow. Um, the challenge sometimes is to, to grow at what level and how fast. Is even growth costs a lot of money, and you have to have a lot of cash. So yeah. that is one of the things about, I think, this I'm excited to be here and hear about some other small giants is, you know, how do, how do you grow your business in a sustainable manner? Because it costs a lot of money to grow and it costs a lot of money to shrink. But does that also mean that, you know, you're, you would potentially have to look at expanding somewhere, whether it be in Vermont or potentially some other location, to be able to service all of the different types of products and foods that you do? Yeah, we have a 15,000-square-foot addition that's being built right now. The steel's up, um, and we're really excited for that. It's going to make our business even uh, better food safety-wise, better for our employees, and certainly increase our capacity by about two. Ted, great meeting you today. Thank you for coming in. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Ted Castle, president and CEO of Rhino Foods, based in Burlington, Vermont. The world of educating our children not only falls into the laps of our schools, but into the hands of 
various companies, including publishing firms, firms that have uh, set a goal to be the first part of a young child's life and a very important role in our society. One such company, Barefoot Books, is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Nancy Traversi is a co-founder and CEO of the company, and she joins us here at the Forbes Small Giants Awards. Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming over today. Very happy to be here. Why did you get into book publishing in the first place, and why specifically more for kids? Well, I had a three-week-old baby daughter, and I had been in business and came from a family of artists and um, met uh, my partner back in, I was living in London, and um, uh, she, she had the idea to start a children's publishing company that introduced children to the wonderful stories from all over the world and really to show how um, much we all have in common uh, through storytelling and rather than focusing on our differences. So... Um, yeah, we started 25 years ago. And so, and, I, and so to, but to be able to reach kids and to be able to be a, a first part of their lives, I mean, that's, that's part of the enjoyment of doing this. No, absolutely. I mean, when we, when we first started, um, at the time in, in the UK market in particular, the books that were on the market were um, either fell into the category of trade publishing, and um, you often got, at the time, there were a lot of lift-the-flap pop-up books. Sure, and, yes. And the ones that you got home from the from the store, and they were all over your back seat of your car. Right, right. And or publishers published the books that were very educational, but maybe they didn't have a lot of you know beautiful artwork. So we really wanted to to bridge that gap between beautiful books that were um, not dumbing down to kids with the level of sophistication in the artwork and the design, but also that had amazing stories and content that was educational. And and seemingly we understand it uh, uh, much better now, but if you Mm -hmm. think back 25 years, maybe the understanding wasn't as much about how important books are for kids when they are that young, to be able to start that process at as young an age as possible because of the improvement and the benefits they can get once they get into their teen years and then on to college and continue on. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much research that shows that um, the younger that you start reading stories to children, the more they will be um, better readers um, once they get into school. And I think the other important thing that is, I think a lot of people are talking about more today is, is just that importance of connection with your children and the, the connection between a caregiver and a child at a very young age. That's a very special time. And um, so the, the more that we can, as, as parents and caregivers and teachers, read to our children um, starting at a very young age, I think the, the better they will be and um, they will grow up to be um, better readers and better citizens. So do you know ballpark about how many books you guys have published over 25 years? Yes, we have published over 600 books since we started um, back in, we started the business in 1992. And um, we have um, not only uh, published 600 books, but we have worked out that we put more than 20 million books into the hands of children. So that's a very rewarding thing to have done. Um, and, And we hope to, to be able to put a lot more out there. But as you said, you started in the UK, but yeah. came over here to the United States. How did that transition occur? So we started um, in, in the first five years, we sold uh, licenses or rights to publishers all over the world. Most of them were in the US. Um, and so in 1998, we decided that um, what better place to, to bring a, our list, which was very focused on multicultural book stories, Folk tales, fairy tales, myths, legends from all over the world um, to the U.S., which is obviously a melting pot of different cultures. And I think back then, multicultural publishing was very unusual. Yeah, uh, nobody yeah. was talking about what you know. Why do we need to to introduce children to to other cultures and values and traditions and ways of life? And and we always felt that uh, children will remember the stories long after they've forgotten the facts. And so we. We um, wanted to be in the U.S. because we felt that Barefoot Books as a brand needed to exist in the U.S. rather than in through Simon & Schuster and Penguin and all the publishers that we were selling rights to. How many, how many times have you been approached, though, by one of those big publishing houses? A, a to, few. Yeah. A few, but I think we've, um, we've always believed in a slightly different model. I think over the years we, we've struggled because we knew that we 
had, had a, a wonderful list, and we knew that our audience of, of discerning parents, educators, caregivers were out there who wanted these, these really beautiful books for their children, but the challenge in traditional publishing was how, did you re- how could you reach them? I mean, the, the, the big book chains sort of had sewn up the, cha- the channel, and we, um, for, at a very early stage in, in England, we started to try to connect directly with our, our customers through mm-hmm. direct marketing, mail order catalogs, which were very unusual even back then in, in the UK. Um, we were the first British publisher with a website, and we've always believed that our, you know, if trying to find our audience of, of parents and teachers who, who want these books and doing it the traditional way wasn't working for us. I think the, the big box distributors tend to sometimes go down to the, the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And, and yeah. so it, that model wasn't working for us. So we really struggled, I think, over the years to, to, to figure it out. And um, I think what we have stuck to is this commitment to community from the very beginning. Well, you mentioned uh, the, the different types of branding that you did early on in the, in your, in the, uh, the start of the business. Yeah. How do you do that now? I mean, I would think, obviously, social media is a, is a big vehicle for you and a variety of other uh, elements as well. We started a um, social selling network. Um, I was lucky enough to, I had four children in five years. Um, Barefoot Books was my fifth child. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, was, I was lucky to be able to work from home and um, be there and have, it wasn't that flexible. I think I still was working 80 hours a week, but I was yeah. able to be at home. And, and we really wanted to empower other women to be able to raise their kids and, and actually Either either earn an income, full time income or part time income, but do something that was integrated with their family. So, a, a, a while ago, we launched uh, uh, what we call our ambassador program, and this allows women to join and run businesses. And a lot of them do school book fairs and farmers markets, Facebook parties, yeah. um, selling to Montessori and Waldorf um, conferences. It's a very different, unusual model in the publishing business, but it is a way. We have about 2,000 of these, these women now in their communities, and, and that, that's a great way to, to reach our audience. But to a degree, it's, it's almost, it seems like, a, a little bit of an unknown piece to the economy of the book-selling industry. You know, I, I mean, you're talking about women that are doing this on a smaller level. It is not the, the huge publishing house like we were talking about before, but it's also a very successful one as well. I think it's got a tremendous ability to scale now that we live in a world where we can connect, we can find our tribe, we can sure. find them on social media. Um, I, I, social media is great. I, we also believe in connecting directly as much as possible, trying to see them in person. Um, we believe that it's, you know, our, we focus now on, on our ambassador community, working with independent bookstores, um, museum shops. We work very closely with literacy organizations and trying to get into classrooms and schools. We just try to avoid the, the mainstream sure. mass market just because it, you know, over the years selling to the book chains and ultimately selling to Amazon, it was hard. You know, it was hard if you had a great product and the, the chains wanted, you know, 4,000 copies and 2,000 right. 2, right. of them would come right. back and right. then you didn't have any to give to the little independent bookstores who you really wanted to supply and often you didn't get paid. So it, it, was, it was hard to, to stick to our guns and sort of avoid avoid that because it, it, even though it was attractive to get those large orders, it really wasn't what we stood for as a business. Right. Nancy Traversi is a founder and CEO of Barefoot Books based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, from what I also read that you are very environmentally aware as well and trying to incorporate that as much as possible with the publication mm-hmm. of the books that you're doing as well. Yeah, well, we, we, our production manager, um, our product head of production is, is, has, has been pioneering and trying to make sure that we were at the forefront um, at, um, working with um, soy-based inks and you know sustainable forests in the in the paper um, production um, and as a as a community sustainability has al- always been one of our core values and protect teaching children not just um, through the, the the books themselves but also with the themes and the content of our books and about our environment and about 
our fragile planet. How has that changed publishing in general, going with that philosophy more so on a daily basis? I mean, I've heard of other public publishers that are doing that as well, not only from just you know how it, it makes you feel as a company, but also from the business perspective as well, the costs that are associated with everything else, but going down the road of, of using soy-based ink instead of regular ink and, and different types of products. Early on, it was more expensive. I think it's gradually becoming more the norm, I think, in, in publishing. I, I mean, we we get asked all the time by our, our audience, our customers, who are very concerned about it. So we listen to them, and they and they want fair trade. They want to make sure that our, our we're, we're ethical uh, as a publisher. So we've always felt it's important to listen to our community, and, and, and so I think it, it's because it's – while was more expensive, I don't. I think it's now becoming more of the norm. One of the words, uh, actually, when Forbes announced all of the the uh, businesses that are being on here with your business, they talked about trust, and, and I just wanted you to to speak on what trust means to you in terms of the publishing industry, and as you mentioned, relating to this large community of families and parents and kids that that are are reading your books. I think it's very unusual in publishing to brand yourself. I mean, from the beginning, we said Barefoot represents a set of core values. We care about diversity, inclusivity, sustainability, the importance of creativity and imagination in kids' lives, and, you know, not, as I mentioned, not dumbing down to them in terms of quality and and artwork and illustration. And that wasn't normal. I think publishing tends to, the large um, publishing houses tend to create lots of different books, but... Uh, we were able to have our own retail stores because there's something about barefoot that people know. People say, "When I see a barefoot book, I know it's I know it's I can spot it a mile away." And it's yeah. not that we don't work with a diverse, you know, range of artists and writers from from all over the world. But there's probably an aesthetic that that and uh, and the themes and the content that we publish that makes it barefoot. So I think in terms of the trust. Um, People know uh, in the industry we're known as well as to our customer base that if they get a barefoot book, it's going to, it's going to be a high quality book that will you know represent the values that we stand for as a business. Great meeting you today. Thank you for coming Thank in. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, the company is Barefoot Books. Nancy Traversi is the co-founder and CEO. We will continue with more from the uh, Forbes Small Giants Award Ceremony here in New York City coming up in just a minute as you're listening to Sirius XM 111 and Knowledge at Wharton on uh, Business Radio. Welcome back to New York City, our special from Forbes Media as we look at their awardees of their Small Giants Awards. Great to have you with us. Dan Loney coming to you from New York City today. Well, if you look at small business and entrepreneurship, chances are you may very well come across artists at some point along the path, but their business creates a large amount of income for local economies and across the United States in general. Noel Motavi is someone that has followed that path from the University of Michigan to now having her own company, one that does designer tile. Uh, Noel Motawi is the founder of and owner of Motawi Tile Works, and it's nice to have you joining us here today. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you. As I said, I guess in part, your design, your love of design and doing this started in college, correct? Indeed. I went to art school as an experiment, uh, and it seemed to be working, so I stayed involved with the art school. Eventually, I um, discovered ceramics, and ceramics has a way of um, of pulling people in. The study of glaze and the firing and the clay uh, can really get to you, and that's what happened to me. And so you've been able to expand that out now over a, a, a number of years, correct? That's right. So right after college, um, during college even, I was exposed to a place called Powabic Pottery, historic uh, tile pottery in Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went to work there after college and just sort of hit my personal glass ceiling there and realized that they weren't doing things that I couldn't understand. And so I, and I have some entrepreneurial DNA. Um, there's some entrepreneurs in my family. Right. And uh, it really kicked in. 
and I was and I wanted to start my own business. So how is that adjustment? Because we had talked recently on the show about uh, the 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 need for artists to better understand the business elements so that they can be successful in this industry. Right, right. I think in college I did have the uh, selling paintings on the sidewalk in Boston idea. Right, right, <laughs> right. Um, but at at Powabic Pottery, I did learn what the business was was a little bit more like. But I, um, when I started my own tile pottery, I had I don't want to say low ambitions, but um, I didn't know the tile industry, and I actually was very clear that I didn't know about business. And I didn't know about the tile industry, so I set out to learn. I went to trade shows. I started reading uh, business magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been reading Norm Brodsky's columns since the yeah. since the early '90s, yeah. actually. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this then. Uh, well, what is the marketplace for for tile these days? <laughs> so it's funny that you ask about the marketplace because. Motawi Tile Works does not run according to this formula that other businesses work with. The whole point of the business in the first place was for Noel Motawi to make a living making the kinds of things I wanted right. and I wanted to be proud of. And so it's not about focus groups and what will sell or anything like that, really. Mm-hmm. The truth is, uh, over the 25 years we've been in business, Motawi actually has earned a following. And I've learned that this crazy genius I have for taking a design and turning it into a Matawi tile, it's something that people want, that it makes people connect with something, with Mm -hmm. each other, with a person, with a place. So I feel like Matawi is really selling connection, connection to beauty, connection to artistry, and connection to honest materials, because it's very low tech. You know, mm-hmm. I know how fancy ceramics are made. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, someone looks at our tiles and says, "Hey, you know, you could probably color these with a um, with a fancy plotter, right? Instead of the eight people you have employed doing this." And I sort of laugh and say, "Yeah, well, that's not what we do." <laughs> well, let me ask you this because if it seems like in the course of doing that. You've developed a community, which is something that a lot of the the people that are being honored here mm-hmm. have in common is that they have, in the course of whether they have truly been looking to do that or not, mm-hmm. they have been able to build a community, build trust with consumers, and, and really it is it, – it's – there is the financial elements of business that are successful, but there are also the personal elements of, of, of business that end up bringing success. And that's one of them, when you build a community and, and you have those relationships with, the, with your consumers. Well, yes, and I agree. The truth is I didn't try to build a community. The community built itself. Right, right. Uh, customers kept coming back. And at this point, I've had people say, oh, we've been meaning to do this for 10 years now. And we're finally ready to do the Matawi fireplace we always wanted, which right. fills my heart with joy. Right. I had a woman uh, not too long ago say, oh, I grew up with your tile, huh. which was interesting and sort of mortifying in a different way. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so when you, get, when you get the connections with, with those people and they tell you these ideas, I, I mean, it's almost like you're building a scrapbook to a degree, correct? You know what? People are attracted to the stuff or they're not. Either the tile speaks to them, the design speaks to them, or it doesn't. And I, I feel like we sell to a very small slice of the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the people who appreciate it. And uh, the reason we have a business is because actually a lot of people respond to my, to my work and my interpretations of other artists' work and things. So it's really about the product catching hold. Right. You know, so many artists that I know say, oh, well, people don't understand my work. And I think, and I think, no, it just doesn't speak to people. That's why they're not buying it. Right. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of great designs out there. So I know if one of my designs doesn't speak to enough people to mm-hmm. make a profit, then I just make, I use a different design. Right. And there's plenty out there. And people respond to my aesthetic. What is what are some of the designs that that you like to do best? Is there are do you have favorites? Oh well, of course. I mean, Matawi started in the arts and crafts uh, period aesthetic mission style. People might call it early twentieth century American decorative design. 
but we put our own twist on it. Okay. I mean, we really, we do different colors. There's a couple of things that I think are distinctive about Matawi design. There's always some drama. There's some boldness. Um, the pieces are unified, meaning there's not disparate elements that go together. They, they feel right together. Mm-hmm. So there's some... There's some ways to describe it in words that do a kind of marginally bad job of describing right. <laughs> what it does, right. what how it works. Um, you know, the, the truth is the time when I pick up on themes that people relate to, people really like those. So I have to, I have to turn my artist voice off and just say, look, people connect with a cardinal. They connect with the cat. Right. It's not anybody else's cat. Right. And I tell my staff we don't do motifs that everyone else does unless I can present them differently and sure. in a creative way. So how how grand has this community kind of developed? Like, I, I mean, is this is this something where you're hearing people from other parts of the world now about Matami and oh. and, and and the the connection that they have with you? Uh, just a little bit internationally. Okay. Um, I know that people come, people do visit from internationally uh, at the Tileworks. We do offer a free public tour. You never know who's going to show up on a Thursday morning. So, and people often say, oh, your tile's going to Germany or your tile's going there. And of course, we sell online, so we get a trickle yeah. uh, of international business. I, I would like to, uh, I've done some trade mission work. Uh, I'd like to go and sell into the UK, Japan, and Australia, where they seem to really appreciate our work. So a lady came into the Tile Works the other day, and I was talking to her, and she said, I love the work that you do, and it makes me happy, and I really can't wait to get a whole installation in my house because it's so beautiful, and please keep doing what you do. How amazing is that? Yeah. So uh, because because it's a physical object and it's beautiful I, I get people that say oh i saw you back when you were in that garage and, and back when you were doing art fairs right. and it's super uh it's just super sweet so, so do you have to consider the, the brand and how you brand it or how you reach it or is is a lot of that almost natural in terms of what you do and and people bringing that attention to your work well, I think it it just comes from other people. I mean, we talk about it. We don't have to sell hard. Right. I you know, we're not trying to tell people how great it is. Either they they respond to it or they don't. Right. Nothing I'm going to say is really going to make a difference of whether uh, whether you're touched or not. Right. In my opinion. So the work sells itself, but the company is professional. So so many artists as you said earlier don't understand the business part. Right. And I'm a little bit of a jack of all trades in that way that I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to draw all day. Yeah. Uh, and building the business uh, is really interesting and exciting. Right. So, you know, one of the things that makes me proud is that uh, we get paid on time. Because if you don't insist on being paid by your event, by your customers, uh, They'll hang you out to dry, maybe yeah. use you as their bank. Yeah. And I, I don't go for that. Yeah. <laughs> and so my uh, accounts receivable people are little tigresses right. when it comes to getting paid. And it's not, it, it's just, I'm really, I'm proud of that, that we're doing things professionally and we care about delivering on time. And, you know, we're careful about the products that we produce. Not only are they beautiful, but we try to, you know, it's a manufacturing concern. Sure. Yeah. So we have to look at how they are to make and whether we have the right materials and how consistent we can be about the product and all that. So uh, what does it mean for you to be at, at an event like this and be a part of, of the group of people that are being honored here? Uh, it's incredibly gratifying. You know, in the, in the race of business, there's never any finish line. So it's wonderful to have someone acknowledging that doing this this work, it's not a big company. It's not the fanciest. I'm not a billionaire. I don't even want to be a billionaire. Right. That we're, that there's value in what we're doing. And I feel there is, and I know my customers feel there is, and it's fantastic uh, that a company like Forbes is paying attention and saying, you know what, the, the, the company is, or the country, the country 
is made up of companies, small companies yeah. like mine. And it's important to me to to be an ongoing model for the fact that you can be a human-centered business and still be very successful. It's nice meeting you. Thank you for joining us today. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. Uh, Noel Mutawi, who is the founder and owner of Mutawi Tile Works. And this great event has a great uh, partner as well, KPMG, uh, lending their assistance to uh, small giants as well. Sal Malili, representing KPMG, joining us for a few minutes. What is it uh, about being a partner in this that, that really draws what KPMG is looking for? Yeah, well, first of all, we just wanted to join in the celebration and recognize what these companies have achieved. It's been truly amazing to hear their stories and uh, for them to allow us to uh, be a part of it, it was just a privilege. But um, it plays very well into our uh, private company practice. Uh, KPMG um, does have a, uh, a subsector of our practice that's completely devoted to serving private companies. And uh, that's a cross-functional practice. And what I mean by that is, in addition to providing uh, our traditional audit tax advisory services, we also provide a whole suite of services to really support uh, companies uh, during any stage of their of their life cycle. And I would imagine in the, in this day and age, especially when we're so focused on Wall Street and and the public companies, that the private companies play an, an integral role in what we're looking for success-wise in, in an economy right now. Totally. I mean, the contributions that private companies make to our, our economy um, – are immeasurable. You could look at job creation. You could look at um, many other metrics. And as I was preparing for this event today and uh, speaking to the group out there, it, there were no shortage of, of uh, metrics that I could have used to at least try to demonstrate uh, what private companies are are doing in in our economy. Um, we're living in an environment of. Uh, shrinking uh, public companies. Uh, if we look at the number of public companies today and where they've come down from uh, over the last uh, several years, I mean, in 1997, we had roughly 9,000 public companies. And as of uh, June of this year, we're in the you know high 5,000 range. So uh, companies, you're, you're spot on. I mean, uh, the focus has always been on uh, companies and how to get them public, but now companies are choosing to, to stay private longer. There's a abundance of private capital. Uh, there's a lot of uh, investors with uh, committed funds that need to be spent. And at the moment, uh, there's needs and issues that private companies are facing that we're trying to address. Like what? Uh, it could be it could range from uh, fundraising. It could range from trying to scale their business. It could range from financial reporting to uh, preparing to an IPO. Uh, we see it over and over again. The more the more that companies have their financial reporting records buttoned up, uh, investors are seeing value in it, and uh, other other constituents, whether they're uh, partners, whether they're uh, strategic uh, investors, they're all seeing value in that. So, uh, you know, the the uh, the issues really run run the gamut. But it is interesting to a degree that that innovation is being affected not only by the public companies but by the private companies as well. And I, I think that's at times a little bit of a misnomer that they just assume innovation with public companies. It's not the case necessarily. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is the private companies. Uh, can uh, teach some of the mature companies some lessons, you know, and I can't take credit for these. I, I give the credit to the amazing clients we serve and the, and the, and the contacts we have, but there are certain things that we learn from them that, uh, that can be replicated. They learn to fail fast. I'm sure you've heard that before. Yeah. Another popular saying I hear from uh, one of our CEOs of one of our uh, special venture-backed companies in New York here uh, is to front load the pain is what he says all the time. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, there's an adjective that's inserted in there right. that yes. I'll leave out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but uh, he says front load the pain. You know, do the hard things first. Um, let's try to uh, act like the company we want to be. He says. So if you want to be like a, pump, a public company, you should start operating the, like one while you're in the in the in the private arena under you know 
out out of the spotlight and below the radar. We talked about innovation, but how does technology also play in this as well? Um, well, we live in an environment where financial information is being uh, produced uh, faster than ever. Uh, I'm going to show my age a little bit, but if you look about look at some other products, right? Um, we used to buy cameras and buy film and yeah. put the film in and snap pictures and take the film out and drive it somewhere and wait a couple days and, 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 and be able to view pictures. So today we're able to take pictures and view them uh, instantaneously. Um, so same thing with the financial information. Uh, our uh, company, our clients, uh, the public, the investors – are conditioned to want to see things faster. And uh, public companies are having to adapt to that, and you know, private companies are no exception to it. So uh, this, this environment of getting financial information on three-month lags is kind of in the, in, the, in the past, and people are going to want to see things on a more current basis. To a degree, it's, it's a little bit like the issue surrounding security right now where everybody talks about, you know, IT people want to be able to give a lag of, of six weeks, whatever it might be, to be able to diagnose a problem with security. It, it's to a degree similar to that is that you cannot wait that period of time. Yeah, it becomes meaningless. Um, it's not as effective. And uh, again, there is perceived value if you could uh, produce financial information in accordance with the standards on a, on a more timely basis. But because of, of how private companies are, are working right now and are so important, and you mentioned how... Uh, how public companies at time are making that that choice of which side that they want to be on. Could we see even more and more companies shift over to the private se- private side? Do you think? Um, potentially, you know, I think it's all determined by who the investors are, what their uh, preferred exit is, what the um, uh, tr- transition strategy may be of the of the original founder. So I think there's opportunity in the public sector as well as the private sector to really monetize the uh, sweat equity that may be uh, baked into some of these companies today. So um, I, I, I really can't tell if there's going to be a trend one way or the other, but there's certainly opportunity on both sides. It's interesting with uh, the people that we have talked to here today, one of the common themes has been about uh, the the approaches that they receive from VC, from private equity, the funds that are potentially out there, and they are deciding that that is not for them. Uh, so in terms of these companies, how do they manage revenue recognition at this point? Well, for, for private companies, particularly um, those that are seeking funds, uh, one of the most important metrics that uh, VCs, and not only VCs, look at is revenue being reported. Um, so while they continue to grow the business, I think what's special about the small giants here is they certainly, they certainly, uh, do not make, uh, growth, uh, the highest priority. They want to grow, but they want to grow in a smart way. They want to grow in a, in a, in a way that they still, um, have the small company feel, um, in a controlled fashion. So everything that, the small giants program stands for are, are, are things that make these companies unique to some of the others that just want to grow at, 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 at all costs. Are, are there certain sectors out there that kind of, are, you know, are focal points in terms of revenue recognition right now? Yeah, I mean, with the new revenue recognition standard uh, upon us for public companies and uh, right behind it for uh, private companies is, uh, you know, something that all companies are really going to have to uh, take a look at and really determine whether or not this new standard is going to have any any implications on them. You know, I can make some broad strokes and say, hey, um, you know, for uh, a, a, a tech company with complex contracts, potentially the standard may have bigger implications than, uh, than a company that uh, buys and sells widgets. Uh, that would be remiss of me to say, but there's certainly... Uh, more risk in certain industries than others as you apply this new standard. So at KPMG, what we've been doing and what we're um, advising our clients is, you know, go through a, a, a thorough analysis of all, of all your contracts, 
identify uh, those unique contracts that are not uh, standard, focus on those, determine what the transaction prices are. Um, if there are multiple element arrangements, do you need to uh, allocate the transaction price uh, amongst different elements? And really um, dig into the uh, the details of the contracts, which perhaps may not have always been uh, analyzed at such a level in the past. So, um, you know, certainly there's uh, some diligence that needs to go into it, but the beauty of it for private companies is that they can learn from what the public companies had to had to deal with. And, you know, the couple things that we're hearing uh, for the, co- you know, from the private companies that went through, the, for the public companies that went through the uh, revenue rec adoption is that it's going to take more time than you initially expected. So uh, whatever uh, uh, effort you thought uh, may be required, you may want to uh, multiply that by, uh, by, by a few digits. And, um, you know, this would all fall into front-loading the pain, you know. Don't kick that can down the road. That's probably something that uh, you should build some processes around and uh, address head-on. Sal Malili from uh, KPMG joining us here on Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. When you come to an event like this and you hear all of these stories, what do you take away from it in general? Uh, I'm always amazed by the by the passion that these folks have. I mean, I have tremendous respect for uh, entrepreneurs in general. Uh, in my business, uh, I meet many of them. Um, and the story I hear over and over again is they uh, very often put everything they have into their businesses and they uh, devote their lives to their businesses and... Uh, I can't say enough about how much courage that takes. So the one thing that always uh, jumps out at me loud and clear at these events is the, is the stories that are told and the, and the courage that is displayed in each one of those. And uh, even more so, uh, you know, a lot of these entrepreneurs could have taken uh, safer routes and, and, and work in corporate America right. and leaving, you know, high-quality schools and universities and uh, really opt to, um, you know, take take an apartment in downtown New York and move in with four or five folks and uh, eat ramen soup for a year. And, (laughs) and, uh, you know, they're they're, they're very well-educated and could could do a lot more... um, safer things after coming out of school but they but they choose this so they choose the you know what i call the narrow path when they could have you know gone down a different path which is very commendable it it, do you see the 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 role of the entrepreneur continuing to grow here in this country moving forward you know it's uh it is contagious i mean having being a native new yorker and uh having spent some time in the bay area uh, before starting our, our VC uh, practice here here in New York at KPMG, um, it, 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 it was uh, it's amazing to see how New York, which was not necessarily always a uh, you know a startup scene, right. it was uh, it's fascinating and you know a once in a lifetime opportunity for me to see that start from nothing to what it is today yeah. and. Uh, I won't get into the New York versus Bay Area uh, discussion, <laughs> but uh, but we've we've come a long way, and maybe I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Sal. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sal Malili from KPMG. That will take care of our show here today from uh, Forbes and the Small Giants uh, Award Summit. Uh, great to have uh, everybody joining us, all of our guests here today. Many thanks as well uh, to all of our friends at Forbes for allowing us to come in here today uh, and do our show. Many thanks to my producers, Patty McMahon and to Monique Nazareth, as well as the super fantastic, incredible Wayne Davis as our on-site engineer here today, and as well to the fantastic, amazing, incredible Dion Simpkins back at our studios at Sirius XM in Philadelphia. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. We'll be back with you tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern Time right here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.